Hello and welcome. I am Joel McReynolds, and you are listening to my preaching podcast. I have the opportunity to share from God's Word and want to share God's message not only with the congregation of the churches I preach in, but also with you. You can find out more information about me on my website, joelmcreynolds.com, where you can also check out my blog. For now, I hope God speaks to you through today's message. All right, if you would turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Aren't you so glad that song that we sang, that we have victory because of what Jesus did on the cross. He died, the perfect human, the God-man, he took our sin upon himself. And then he rose from the grave after three days and gave us the victory. And we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. But before we do that, we'll, uh, I want to give to you a pastoral word of warning. A word that I, honestly, I didn't want, I wanted to bring a good, uh, happy sermon to you this morning. But I felt it my responsibility and God impressed upon me this passage this morning to bring to you as a word of warning. A man reportedly came to that famous British pastor, Charles H. Spurgeon. He was looking for the perfect church. And the famous preacher told him that he had many saintly people in his congregation, but a Judas could be among them. After all, even Jesus had a traitor in his midst. He went on to say that some in his church may be walking in disobedience, as had been the case of the believers at Rome, of the believers at Corinth, at Galatia, and at Sardis. And so he responded to the man, My church is not the one that you're looking for. But if you should happen to find the perfect church, I beg you, do not join it, for then you would spoil the whole thing. <laughs> I open with a story today to, before we get into our passage, to remind you that no church is perfect, nor should we expect a church to be perfect, because the way the church is composed, God has taken people who are broken by the power of sin, people like me, people like you, who have failed in keeping God's law, and he takes these broken pieces and he puts them together in a beautiful tapestry a masterpiece of his own work, to be perfect, to be his people presented, working together, refining one another, helping one another in sanctification, pushing one another to good works, so that in the end he may be able to present us as his bride to his son. And so it takes all of us, those who have been broken by sin, coming together in the church. We have been redeemed by the blood of His Son, Jesus. And Ephesians 1 tells us that we have been adopted as, as sons and daughters of God into the family of God. So before we look at the closing instructions here in Romans chapter 16 that Paul has given to the church at Rome, 
let's review what he's covered so far in his letter. And Romans is a meaty letter, so I ask that you bear with me as we review. In his letter, he recaps the essential doctrines of the faith. First, first three chapters, he demonstrated the need for salvation because all have sinned. And we get that famous verse in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He moves from that to show that he has made ultimate provision through his son Jesus, that he, what he did on the cross accomplished for us the salvation that we needed. So having explained that all need it, he says Jesus has provided it for all. If you believe in him, he says you're justified by faith in Christ. And then he began to show the resulting freedom that comes from the gospel. How believers are able to live in freedom to do good works. So salvation is the beginning of a transformed life. It's not the end goal, but the beginning of something new. And then he turned to show how wide the scope of the gospel was, to show that it's for Jews, it's for Greeks, it's for everyone in Christ. And then beginning in chapter 12, he began to speak about this transformed life of the believer. And in our passage this morning, Paul has been naming several individuals that are in the church that he knows by name, sending them his greetings. And then this weird section here, verse 17 through 20, where he kind of stops his greetings and gives a final word of warning. So we're going to look at this final word of instruction that he gives to the church at Rome this morning. But before we do that, I ask that you would bow with me before we dive into this passage. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that we have to come before you as your church, to come before you as individuals who have been broken by sin, individuals who have fallen short of your glory. And Lord, we thank you that for us, it doesn't matter. As long as we've recognized our sin and we've turned to Christ and placed our faith and trust in what he has done for us, Lord, that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works of righteousness. So, Lord, I pray this morning, as we examine this passage, would you reveal to your children what you have for us this morning? We pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Look with me beginning in verse 17. I'm going to read from the NIV because that's what I happened to pick up this morning. Verse 17, I urge you, brothers... To watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. I'm going to pause there because this, the structure of this passage is Paul gives this word of warning and then he supports it in three different ways. So the main thrust is verse 17. Be aware of those who divide. It seems odd that this verse would be here. In fact, many scholars have said maybe it was supposed to be somewhere else, but all conclude that it is here for a reason. And we find that it actually makes great sense based on the context of chapter 16. 
Because it flows from Paul's love for the church. He's been going through and saying, here are all these people that I know in the church of Rome. Now, Paul did not establish the church of Rome, unlike so many of the others that we read. We don't really know how the church of Rome began. We don't know who started it. Uh, but we do know that Paul knows several people that are in the church of Rome. And so he's writing to them out of love for them. And in the preceding verse, you have this, uh, this great, if you're a youth and you're a guy, this is your favorite verse, right? Greet one another with a holy kiss, right? We, this is this context, this token of love, this token of unity, this harmony in the church. And, but then he comes to verse 17 and he says this warning. Watch out for people whose purpose is to come in and to disturb the harmony of of the church and to create division within it. And the reality is, it's the nature of love to warn those whom you love. It's the reality that if you love somebody and you see them going the wrong way, you want to say, stop, do not do this, here are the consequences. So here's what Paul's doing. He's saying, stop these divisions. He doesn't necessarily say that there are divisions already taking place, but he has been talking about all the other churches of Christ sending greetings. And as you read throughout the New Testament letters, you find that many times in these churches from which he has come, they have had division issues. And in fact, if you look just in the next book, 1 Corinthians is all about the church being divided. And so as Paul's giving this warning, it's based out of his love for them. So he reminded them, be on guard. And watch out for those who cause division. Now, we think of love in the modern sense. Maybe not here, maybe not in this church, but maybe. But in culture, we think of love as kind of the sick sentimentality. That in order to preserve the unity, you have to let everybody believe what they want. You have to let everybody practice what they want. But what Paul is saying here is no... You, if you love somebody, you're going to stand for the truth, you're going to tell them the truth, and you're going to expect them to abide by the truth. And so he builds his, his uh, argument here on doctrinal purity that leads to church unity. It is essential that you stand on the truth of Scripture to draw people to unity in the church. And so Paul warns against those who would lead to doctrine that goes against the truth that he has spent the last 15 chapters speaking to them about. This is the truth that you have received from the beginning. And if you stand on this truth, you will be united. <coughs> and as I was preparing this message, I felt somewhat like Paul because as I was writing it, I could picture different people in the congregation here. People who I've known for years, people who I care very deeply about. I could go through and name people like he is doing in the beginning of chapter 16. And so I share this message with you today out of love for you and concern for you. So he says, keep away from false teachers. Edward John Carnell said, it is better to divide over truth than to unite around error. So Paul has presented this, this is the truth. 
This is the doctrines that you must adhere to as a faith community. But he warns them to be on guard against those who teach against it. And he gives a word on what to do if someone comes in teaching something that is erroneous. He says, avoid them. Stay away from them. Put them away from you. Now, what I'm, I want to emphasize this here. What this means is not allowing them to continue to influence you. What it doesn't mean is to stop talking to them. What it doesn't mean is to stop loving them or to stop praying for them. He still wants you to do those things. He wants you to treat them as if they were an unbeliever. And what do we do for unbelievers? We pray for them. We love them. We call them to Christ. So that's the way, if someone's coming in and they're teaching a falsehood, that's the way that Paul wants us to respond to them. Put them out from us. Put them out of the church. Don't let them continue to influence and cause division. But pray for them. Love them. Continue to talk to them. But don't ignore the problem and expect the problem to go away because it doesn't happen. If you ignore a problem, it doesn't go away. I think it was Friday. We were over at my grandparents' house and we were discussing a show. I've never seen it, thankfully. It sounds disgusting. But it's called Dr. Pimple Popper. If you aren't familiar with the show, the premise is that these people have allowed different skin lesions to continue to take place until they have grown so large that they are good for TV. Uh, then they go to see this dermatologist with this huge spot on their forehead or a huge spot on their knee, and they want it removed. And so she goes and she cuts out the... the tumor or the, the lesion that has grown and allows all the pus and everything to drain out. And it's disgusting. I don't recommend watching it if you have a weak stomach. But uh, there was one that we were talking about that he had for 12 years had a spot on his knee. And it had grown and grown and grown. And then out of precaution when she popped the pimple, um, they took a biopsy of it and it turned out to be cancerous. And this guy had allowed this cancer to grow for 12 years. He could see it. He could see that there was a problem, but he did not address it. And allowing issues that cause division in the church for a long period of time allows that issue to become cancerous and to destroy the body of Christ. And unfortunately, I have seen this in a couple of the churches in which I've served. It's... An issue that's often exasperated by the lack of a pastor. When you don't have a pastor to lead you, it's a lot easier to say, well, we'll just push that to the side. We'll wait till the pastor gets here. And then he can deal with the issue when he gets here. One of the churches I served in had gone four years without a pastor. And they wanted to wait until the pastor was there to lead them through their issues. And when I got there in my first pastorate, I had no clue. And we had many a tumultuous business meeting. And I ended up leaving fairly soon afterwards. It didn't turn out well. Well, here's what I, my word for you. As you are waiting for a pastor to come in, 
Don't allow divisions to come up, but if they do, address them immediately. Begin by working it out amongst yourselves so that when the pastor comes in, he has a healthy church, not one that has a growing cancer in the midst. Well, in the next three verses, Paul supports this warning. Look with me at verse 18. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Now, Paul doesn't say specifically here who to watch out for. But he warns that they are serving themselves and not Jesus. Now, some scholars would claim he's speaking to the Judaizers. He's, if you're familiar with some of the other writings, he talks about these Judaizers who come in and they want to add to what Christ has done and say you have to still follow the law in addition to being saved by grace through faith. So what they say is you have to have grace plus works. And any time you have grace plus works, that's a false gospel. So they, he claims that that might be uh, who some of who he's talking about. Some others claim that he's warning about the Gnostics who believe that there is uh, two natures and that the spiritual nature is greater and heavenly and it wants to get to Christ, but the, heaven, the, the physical nature wants to keep the body down, wants to keep the person tied to sin. And the reality is Paul doesn't necessarily address either one of those here. It's kind of ambiguous. And I think it was important that it was ambiguous because he was speaking very generally. It's not that he had a certain group of potential troublemakers in mind, but all troublemakers. And so, uh, this is a general warning to beware of any false teacher who would cause division in the church. And he warns that these disruptive people, they don't seek to serve God, but rather they seek to have their own desires fulfilled. The Greek phrase there literally says they seek to fill their bellies. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. Now Christians who come in and cause trouble in the church is because they have desires of their own they are not seeking God. They're not seeking to have God's will fulfilled. They're not seeking to fulfill God's mission. And so, because of their selfish desires, Paul says, they are not to be received into the local fellowship of the body of believers. They're usually filled with pride, and they want to tell everybody else what to do. And the word that is used... And psychology, I think, perfectly illustrates this kind of person. It's called egocentrism. Egocentrism. It's the inability to take the perspective of others. It's to think that everyone else looks at the situation the same way you do, that everyone sees the situation the same way that you do, and that everybody thinks the same way that you do. They can't consider that somebody else may think in a different way. They can't see other perspectives. They're completely selfish and self-centered. And in fact, in educational psychology, egocentrism is associated with, particularly with two stages in life. Can you guess them? The first one is toddlers, right? If you ever 
try to get a toddler to share and they don't want to share, you've seen egocentrism. They want their way. They want it now. And they, they will do whatever they need to to get it, including screaming, crying, throwing themselves on the ground. That is egocentrism. Additionally, there's a time period, it's much briefer, thankfully, but in young adolescence. Think about a young teenager or a preteen. What do they say? No one understands me. Nobody understands me. Nobody gets my way. It's all about them. And this is the way that false teachers think. They think they're right, everybody else is wrong, and the problem I see in many churches, especially those without a pastor, is that people become focused on themselves. They become egocentric. They want what they want, the focus of the church turns inward, beginning to focus on, well, I, I want a pastor that preaches 20 minutes, but I want a pastor who exegetes the scriptures well. I want music that plays a guitar, no, I want organ and piano, right? We get so many different things that are really not important that come up in the church because of personal preferences. Amen. When the focus of the church turns inward, it becomes a social club. And that's not what I want for this church. We must remember, you must remember, this is not your church. Yes, you come and you partake of it. You are a member of it. But whose church is it? God's church. It is God's church. It's Christ's church. And you must constantly be looking to Him to see what He has for you. And I can tell you one thing. If you're looking to Him, He's going to have you looking out. He's going to be looking at the people who need to be served. He's going to have you looking at the community. He's going to have you looking to one another and seeking to outdo one another in your love for each other. That is not an egocentric church. That is a Christ-centered church. That is a Christ-focused church. That is a healthy church. And that's what I want for you. Remember, your purpose is not to be a social club. It's not to be a time of coming in and getting what you want. Yes, I think you do get recharged. You get refocused. I think there's benefits that you receive from partaking in worship. But the benefit overall is for God. And to give Him the praise, the honor, and the glory that He deserves. Amen. So don't allow yourself to become like one of these false teachers. Filling your belly. Serve Jesus, not you. In John, uh, 2 John chapter, or sorry, 2 John verse 8, he says, Look to yourselves that you do not lose those things you worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. But in the second part of verse 18, he speaks about a second problem. Not just that they're focused on themselves, but secondly, they deceive the unwary. They deceive the unwary. Standing against false teachers is not popular. Standing against those who teach false doctrine is not easy. Why? Because false teachers don't get a following by being rough and callous and harsh. They get their following by being nice. They get their following by saying things that please you, that tickle your ears. Seldom will it be popular to resist a 
false teacher in the church. They are usually perceived as the one that's bringing blessings. They have winsome words that they use. You like to be around that kind of person because they are nice and they make you feel good. And I think to one of the earliest false teachers in church history, you may be familiar, you may not, with the name Arius. Arius was a beloved pastor. He began to teach, though, that Jesus Christ was a creature, that he was the first creature that God created, and then from him, then he created everything else. He lowered Christ's divinity and said he wasn't co-eternal with the Father and co-eternal with the Spirit. And you listen to this and you think, well, what about the Trinity? Right? Doesn't Scripture indicate that they're all equal, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all eternal, coexistent in the Godhead? Well, Arius said no. And the crazy thing is, lots and lots of churches followed his teaching. He gained a large following. In fact, one historian said that most, if not, or many, if not most of the churches in the late 3rd and early 4th century followed his teaching because they liked his personality. One of the historians described Areas like this. He was tall and lean, of distinguished appearance and polished address. Women doted on him, charmed by his beautiful manners, touched by his appearance of asceticism. Men were impressed by his aura of intellectual superiority. He taught the scriptures in a way that caught people's attention. He taught the scriptures in a way that drew people to him, but he taught them Wrong. He taught them as a heretic. His teachings denied the Trinity, and the teachings divided the church on this issue. You had those who supported Arius, and you had those who stood against Arius, so there was this vast division, and it resulted in an ecumenical council. And Arius was found in this council to be guilty of of heresy, and he was excommunicated from the church, and because of the nature of the geopolitical time, he was also exiled from his home. You must be constantly alert, constantly aware of those who come speaking with flattering words and smooth talk. 2 Timothy 4.3 warns, for the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. So if you're not on guard against it, if you're not constantly watching for it, you are the ones that become naive. You are the ones who are allowed to follow and to follow the wrong teaching. You must not allow yourself to be naive, but constantly be on guard against these teachers who would stir up division based on your base desires. God desires not division, but peace and harmony among his people. 
And anyone who would bring, who would mar the unity, the harmony of the local church does not serve the Lord Jesus, but serves their own stomach, regardless of his claim. He puts his interests above the welfare of the church. He will seek to draw power and to focus on what he wants by sweet persuasion. So Paul knew the reputation, though, at the church in Rome as being excellent. And so he continued in verse 19 saying, The report of your obedience has reached everyone. Therefore, I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good. I want you to be wise about what is good. And yet innocent about what is evil. So there's two aspects to this verse. Uh, which serves as a rationale for verse 18. Paul rejoices over the Roman church because they had a great reputation. If you go back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, he gives this word to them in his introduction. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And then he gives a reason. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. They have a good name. They have a reputation. The Roman church was well known for being faithful and obedient to the gospel. They had a good name. And a good name is important for the advancement of the gospel, both for you as an individual and for you as a church. So think back to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 2. Sorry, what the Bible says about Jesus. Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. He had a good reputation among the people. And when he began to preach and when he began to do good works, they listened to him because he had a good reputation. We don't know much about Jesus' life before he turned 30, but what we do know is what the Scripture tells us. He was respected. Now, as you all know, the McReynolds has a certain reputation. And when I was a teenager, I was given a plaque with my last name on it and a poem on it, or a, a saying, about keeping the good name good. And it was a reminder to uphold the tradition of the name McReynolds to protect the reputation of the name. Mary Black Road Baptist Church has a reputation. It has a reputation of care. It has a reputation for training up ministers. It has a reputation as a loving family church. You have a reputation that I challenge you to remember, to uphold, and to protect. And in fact, I want to challenge you to do more than just uphold it and keep it good. I want you to advance it. Take it out. Make it an even better name. Maybe grow in favor with God and with man. But don't do it because you want the name of the church to be great, but because you want the name of the Savior whom the church serves to be made great. Amen. Focus on exalting Him, and He will exalt you. First yes. Peter 5, 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that He may exalt you. At the proper time. The Romans must be on their guard precisely because news 
of their obedience have reached around the world. Everybody knew who they were. And if they failed, the witness of Christ would be tarnished. So Mary and Black, I challenge you, do not fall. Do not become divided. Maintain your good name. And in the second half of verse 18, Paul says, Be wise and be innocent. Be wise and good and innocent and evil. Don't let your obedience be tainted by evil. Once again, he reminds them again, be on guard against that which is evil. Have discernment. Be wise about what is good. We need to be wise in heavenly wisdom, yet pure like a child. God wants our wisdom to result in our good, and he wants us to be intimately familiar with his gospel. He wants you to know it. He wants you to live it. And he wants you to serve it. Advance it. Now, I've used this anecdote several times before. April, I'm sure you've had the same training. But when I was trained as a teller, they gave me a $100 bill. I said, study this $100 bill. Fill it. Rub your hands on it. See what it looks like. And then they gave a series of counterfeit bills, or at least pictures of counterfeit bills, to look at and to see where was it different. The way we learned what was counterfeit was by studying what was authentic. And that's what we need to do with the gospel. Study the gospel. Understand the gospel so that you can identify those that are false. A gospel church is one that is unified in love for one another with a foundation of faith in the atoning work of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul wrote, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints. You're members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In Jesus, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. You are a holy temple of the Lord. Paul here echoes Jesus' instruction to his 12 disciples as they were preparing to go out and to share the gospel and to work mighty works. Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 16, Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Dear friends, be excellent at what is good and be innocent of evil. But realize this great promise that we have in verse 20. That ultimate victory is assured. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. So let me first remind you of true power. For even though the struggle that we have against evil sometimes seems like it will last forever, Paul here promises that it will not. It will not last forever. He discerned that Satan is working in the churches by bringing false teachers with attractive and compelling speech to lead those who are not paying attention, those who are not wary, astray. The presence of the adversaries within the churches due to the great enemy 
that we have. We are engaged in spiritual warfare 24-7, 365. We face an evil. And that evil seeks to get a toehold in the church. He seeks to ruin not just your individual witness, but the witness of the church as a whole. So listen to what it says in Ephesians 4.27. You must always be on guard that you do not give the devil a foothold. But in contrast to the troublemakers, you must serve the God of peace. These troublemakers, much like their master, will one day be defeated. Their influence will be crushed just as their master is crushed. They are temporary, but we seek the eternal. Paul alludes back to the first promise that we find of salvation. Back, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where he told the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Notice this great promise that we have in verse 20. The serpent is crushed. The serpent, the enemies are crushed under your feet. Under your feet. Did you catch that? He didn't say it's the feet of Jesus. They're crushed under the feet of you. How do we know this? What does this mean? Well, we know that at the end of days, Satan will be fully defeated. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The final destruction of Satan and the second coming of Jesus are concurrent events. When Jesus comes back, Satan will be cast into the pits of hell, where he will remain for eternity. But in a sense, God is crushing Satan right now. A decisive victory was won, was won on that day 2,000 years ago. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus rose up from that grave that we sang about uh, not, not too long ago, He defeated sin, He defeated death, and He defeated the devil. He crushed the head of the servant, and He invites you to join Him in His victory. The, word, the name Jesus, what does it mean? What does Jesus mean? Come on, you should know this. Jesus means Savior. Jesus means Savior. You must acknowledge Him as Savior, but in order for Him to be your Savior, you must acknowledge Him first as Lord. You must acknowledge Him as God, the one who purchased us. With His blood, the one who owns us, who leads us, and whose sovereignty over us, we acknowledge with joy. Because if you are in Him, then you are a co-heir with Him. And if you are a co-heir with Him, that means you are a co-conqueror with Him. You conquer with Him when you are in Him. Paul gives this benediction of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is more than just a wish for them. It's a promise. It's a promise that becomes a transforming reality in your life if you've embraced Jesus as your Lord with a living faith. You must not rely on your own strength to withstand false teachers. You must not rely on your own strength to withstand the devil. You must not rely on your own strength to withstand your fleshly desires. But you must stand in the power of Jesus. 
And if you have embraced Jesus as your Lord, then you don't have to live in fear. But you do have to live with your eyes open. You have to be watchful. You have to be wary of false teachers. You have to be discerning. Or as Paul puts it here, be wise in what is good. What does it mean to be wise? Well, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So if you're going to be wise, you must be in Jesus. Focus on Him. Live for Him. Abide in Him. And if you do that, then you will be a church that is blessed by the grace of God. And so the invitation this morning is simple. One sentence. Submit to Christ. Submit to Christ. Submit your life to Christ. It doesn't matter if you're an unbeliever or a believer. You need to submit your life to Christ. And if you're here and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ, Scripture says that you must repent of your sins, turn to Him, and let Him be Lord of your life. You will not be denied because He loves you. And He wants you to be in Him. He will accept you as you are. He will accept you as broken and sinful and dirty and nasty. It doesn't matter. He will take you as you are. But guess what? He loves you so much He will not leave you in that condition. He seeks to transform you by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you are here and you're an unbeliever, my urge to you this morning is to place your faith and trust in Jesus. Be saved by grace through your faith in Him and His work on the cross and His victory over death and His resurrection. But if you're here and you are a believer... Here's my challenge to you. Are you living a life of submission to Christ? Are you seeking His glory or are you seeking your own glory? Are you seeking His appetite or are you seeking your own appetites? Are you seeking to fill your own bellies or are you seeking to bring glory to our Lord and Savior Jesus? If you're not living for Him, not devoted to Him, not seeking Him in every area of your life, submit to Him today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Please subscribe to catch the latest episodes and find me on YouTube. Until next time, go out and pierce the darkness with the light of His Word.